Hello and welcome to Lecture 10A of MGI 521 Professional Communications. My name is Brenton Birchmore and today we're going to discuss conflict and how our use of professional communications can perhaps avoid it, reduce it and resolve it. We know that in the professional environment, conflict is inevitable. But is all of the conflict that we encounter equally inevitable? How can we perhaps minimise it? How and why does it happen? What are the core drivers that make a situation conflicting? And is there some way that we might have been able to resolve it or minimise it beforehand? But first, what is conflict? Well, conflict is a willingness to invest energy in an outcome that is not aligned with other people. So the origin of conflict is in the lack of alignment. But a lack of alignment in and of itself is not enough to create a conflict situation. The conflict arises when the person or people want to invest energy in pursuing their version of whatever is misaligned. So we can be unaligned without necessarily being in conflict. And that's typically a situation where there's a degree of acceptance. And we call it acceptance when a person is not willing to invest energy in changing that. They might not like it. They might not be happy with it. They might be planning to do something about it. But until they actually do that, it is a form of acceptance. So we should separate here the ideas of acceptance from agreement. Someone who's in a possible conflict situation usually does not agree with something that's happening. But they might be accepting it purely on the basis that they're not yet prepared to invest energy in making it a conflict. Agreement is where the goals and the desires are more aligned. People are willing to have that outcome because they see a positive value from it. Acceptance without agreement might still be a future conflict in the making. So a conflict is really about the threshold at which somebody decides that they're prepared to invest energy in changing whatever it is they're not happy with. And we know that some people are more and some people are less inclined to cross that threshold and convert something that's merely misaligned into something that they're going to do something about. And we know it also depends upon the nature of the situation and how each individual person reacts to that situation. It also depends on how others around them are reacting to that situation. How much acceptance or tolerance or patience or not is exhibited by those who are close to them in the professional environment. But a disagreement or misalignment that might be currently being accepted might one day become a conflict when the motivation to invest rises far enough. So in many cases, the potential conflict that we might ultimately be faced with usually already exists in the form of some unresolved misalignment of goals. This means that many conflicts can at least be addressed or perhaps resolved before they reach the height of their investment. But we have to know about it and understand it, both of which relies upon our communications. But when someone makes the decision to invest, it's not just that change in their motivation. It's not merely the change in their decision that says that they're now going to invest energy, that they can't accept it anymore, but also their intentions, their strategy of how they want to go about dealing with this 
also changes significantly when they decide to enter conflict mode. Typically, when we enter a conflict mode or mindset, we usually decide that a win-win outcome is no longer necessarily an option. It's not necessarily the best and most available plan. It may not be feasible. So conflict typically arises when we make the decision that some degree of loss as part of an outcome of a situation is inevitable, be it loss for us or loss for someone else. Someone is probably going to end up disappointed because they're going to lose in some way as a result of this conflict. So the triggering of the conflict mode is an awareness and an acceptance of that fact, that it's going into a situation where somewhere, someone somehow is going to lose. So it's this awareness of this inevitability and the perceptions of what kind of inevitable loss that might look like that influences the creation of the conflict strategy. It makes it a battle or a conflict in the sense that someone is entering into this with a fight in mind because they've come to the conclusion that someone is going to lose and the only way to make sure it isn't them is to do battle. And this is where they begin to form their battle strategy. So let's revisit the three requirements that we've talked about. First of all, a misalignment of some kind. Secondly, a motivation to invest energy in order to resolve that misalignment because they'll no longer accept it. And thirdly, a resignation that someone somehow is probably going to lose as a result of that conflict, that there may be a price to pay. So obviously, if we want to avoid this highest end of the conflict, we might need to be able to identify the earlier prompts, the key points and signals that tell us that this situation might end up in a conflict. That usually means we need discussion, we need dialogue, we need to uncover where the misalignment exists. We also need to uncover the depth of feelings, the emotional context surrounding that misalignment, to know how much it matters to others. So that will help us understand what, when and how the people involved might turn their acceptance into a willingness to invest in changing the situation. But also, we can understand how much people believe in reaching a good, mutually beneficial resolution. Because whilst they have that belief, they'll be less likely to enter a direct conflict mode and might still be able to enter a reconciliation mode. So there are some obvious points that come out of this that might help us avoid a conflict situation. One is that some misalignment might be due to misunderstanding or miscommunication. And bringing clarity to those situations might dispel a misalignment that shouldn't really exist. Secondly, by understanding the extent to which people feel or respond to a misalignment that might truly exist, we might become more aware of potential imbalances between decisions and outcomes. We might learn what misalignment is painful and where it might not be accepted for much longer. And thirdly, when it gets to the point of someone taking action, if we can maintain a belief and a confidence that a positive win-win resolution is still available and that it might actually work, we might still avoid a full conflict situation where somebody ends up losing. And yes, all of our ability to communicate will be useful in trying to achieve any of these outcomes. 
But even though we might want to find these things out, sometimes people might hold their cards close to their chest. They could lack confidence that a win-win resolution is possible or reasonable at that point, and that by revealing information towards getting a resolution, that they might feel that they're more likely to weaken their position in an ultimate conflict rather than actually benefit and lead towards a mutually beneficial result. So whether or not people are forthcoming when you want to uncover and resolve these kinds of issues and how honest and direct they will be with what they reveal will often depend somewhat on what their prior experience has been or what their perception of other people's prior experience has been. In essence, it'll often come down to how much they trust our leadership, our intentions, and our communications. But what if creating an alignment is too far of a gap to bridge? What if the misalignment is not reconcilable? Or what if we can't get enough information? What if they've already begun to invest in direct conflict action? The conflict is already there. Well, there is another decision gate that people typically go through when they're preparing for conflict. And that is a readiness to suffer as a result of their conflict, even if they win. Now, this is a little different from what we said before about a readiness or preparedness that some kind of loss will take place. This is an acceptance that even winners might suffer through the fallout process. Typically, people who enter into a conflict situation in a professional environment are aware that even if they win or get what they want out of the situation, there may be negativity surrounding that victory. There'll be a cost in some social or professional context for having had the battle in the first place. And some people are more willing and more ready to accept that consequence than others. But that's the final hurdle. And when it's overcome is when people will be in a conflict situation, what they would consider to be a fight. And that mindset, that attitude, having already crossed significant thresholds and barriers, will have a degree of momentum to it and will be much more difficult to stop or to alter. But if you're at that final place, that final step, and the very threshold of the conflict, that's generally the last point at which the reluctance to cause the suffering, the pain, and the fallout from having this battle might still be a deterrent. If we do get an opportunity to avoid the conflict by revealing or gathering some information or resolving some misalignment, we might be able to resolve it without getting into the full conflict, if we can focus on win-win outcomes. But this is largely the same as how we would have to go about solving it once we're already in a conflict situation. Often, once we already have a conflict, often the damage is done by the collateral consequences, the things that suffer outside of the core issues that the conflict revolves around. So if we can keep things focused on the core reasons of why people invested in this conflict in the first place, the key misalignments that started all of this, what was most significant to them, and if we can limit or prevent the scope of the conflict from spilling out onto other things and into other areas, that we might be able to limit those collateral consequences that can occur from the conflict whilst we work on resolving it. But if we find that a conflict 
very quickly spills over into many other topics and the scope broadens almost uncontrollably, that might be a sign that there has been a lot of other issues of acceptance that have been hiding and sitting under the radar and that this willingness to invest in one conflict creates a motivation and a willingness, a cascading effect to invest in many other conflicts. It's the old saying, in for a penny, in for a pound. A person, once they've decided they're going to accept some sort of pain, the risk of some sort of fallout, well, they might as well bring more issues to the surface and try and get everything resolved because there's no point only just achieving one little task. So it doesn't mean that if we're trying to contain or narrow the scope and we find that that's terribly difficult, it doesn't mean that we should totally ignore these other issues. Perhaps it means that we should broaden the scope of the conflict and get and uncover many more of the other sources of misalignment so we can resolve them here and now rather than wait for each one of them to come back later and create a new conflict. But once we've got an understanding and hopefully some agreement on what the scope of the conflict is, we can let those involved in the conflict focus on the results that they're looking for and perhaps let others outside of that handle the process of the conflict. And this leads to things like mediation and arbitration, which is a kind of assisted negotiation, or perhaps where a company procedure or policy might dictate how certain conflicts get resolved with the help of third parties or neutral parties. And it's meant as a strategy of containment to contain the way in which the conflict unfolds, to prevent it causing unnecessary, unintended consequences. But what about when the conflict is with ourselves? Well, we still need to get to the heart of the motivation for that conflict, the thing that caused it to move into a stage of being invested in. Find out what really matters and avoid that drifting into other things. And this often means going back to the beginning, back to the root cause where things were merely a misalignment and working up from there. But what can we do to more consistently avoid conflict? Well, often one of the things in our favour is the expectation of others, what they expect of us. People invest in a conflict when they believe that it's their best strategy for the situation that they find themselves in. Conversely, people are often only willing to invest in a win-win strategy when they think or expect that that will actually work, that will work for them just as well as it will work for others. And that often comes down to what they expect from us, from our leadership. So consistency, or lack of it, in our own communications, the consistency with which we've clearly articulated information and passed on knowledge, or have cared about the details or differences in perspectives, the confidence and trust, or lack of it, that others might have in understanding what it really means to them, in how well we've handled those misunderstandings or miscommunications in the past. All of this contributes to our reputation, and how others should expect us to handle a conflict or a potential conflict situation. So this comes back to reciprocation, which works in all manner of communications issues. Letting others know what they can expect from us, behaving in that way and giving them those benefits, might influence their behaviour towards us, including in a conflict situation. So if we can consistently be someone that others would reliably predict, would always seek, and value a win-win outcome? 
If they're confident that we're honestly interested in a win-win scenario, then they are more likely to be as well. If we're someone who consistently seeks to resolve misalignment in the early stages, someone who listens to others and tries to understand their perspective, if we can be someone who'll consistently try to begin a conflict resolution with a trip back down to the alignment discussion, then others may adjust their behaviour to work within that expectation. So if we consistently work with others and communicate with others to seek alignment, to understand the reasons for misalignment, to strive for win-win outcomes, to limit the collateral consequences by focusing on the core issues, to use effective dialogue and discussion for all of this, to speak honestly and listen respectfully, then others that we work with might do the same. And they might work harder to operate within that paradigm and within that strategy. And sometimes we can avoid conflict completely with this strategy and with this expectation. Sometimes we can diffuse conflict and resolve the reasons for it before it gets too big. But sometimes when the conflict has to happen, with this kind of communications reputation, with the expectation from others, will have a faster path to its ultimate resolution. This brings us to the end of Lecture 10A. Hello and welcome to Lecture 10B of MGI 521 Professional Communications. This is Brenton Birchmore, and this discussion will look into some of the details of negotiation and mediation as a function of professional communications. So what if we find ourselves in a battle for outcomes? We're not in agreement with someone or others, and it's up to us and them to somehow negotiate some kind of new settlement or agreement so that everyone can move forward. Now, for some people in some organisations, this is a rare occurrence, but for others, it's more like a typical Monday. So what do we do in a professional negotiation situation? Well, there are many good books and even more good articles on the art of negotiation, many different perspectives on what negotiation is all about. Many of those are worth reading. But in contrast to those lengthy discourses, here we're just going to look at some brief fundamentals in how our communications can play a role. But this discussion is not about sales negotiation. It's not about contract negotiation. It's not about negotiation between commercial entities. This is about resolving disagreements in a professional workplace environment before they become a conflict or before they become a bigger conflict than they already are. Of course, any discussion about negotiation, there's always a lot of talk about the win-win scenario. But winning is a matter of perspective. For some people, winning requires them to have everything that they want and for everyone else to have not much of what they want. Combative means that I must win and I will battle in order to make sure that I do. But competitive goes a step further. It means that you must lose. Competitive negotiation is more about comparative outcomes, making sure that I get more of what I want than you get that you want. But in a professional scenario, a win-win outcome is where both parties get enough of what matters most to them. So when we can get enough of what matters to us, by giving or helping another party get most of what matters to them, that's the classic win-win scenario, 
where each party has some effort, some role to play in helping ensure that the other party wins enough. But sometimes the thing that both parties want is the same, some unique benefit that really only one of them can get. Somebody may have to compromise or sacrifice whatever it is that they want the most. So then, in order to make a win-win scenario out of that, they would need to get enough of the other things that also matter in order to create a sufficient balance for it to feel like a win-win outcome. But in professional communications, it's not necessarily about winning, but just to move forward, to create some acceptable outcomes. And the first step is something most negotiators would agree with, and that is we need to know ourselves. We need to know our position, understand our motivation for why we want the position that we want. And this is a really key point. It's not enough just to understand what we want. We need to really understand why we want it, why we're investing in it. Knowing the source of our energy to invest in fighting for something will help us not only persist through the discussions, but also help with the prioritization. When it comes to inevitably giving some concessions and giving things away, knowing why we want everything that's on our wish list will help us understand and decide what we can live without. It can be surprising how many negotiations occur where people are fighting very hard for something that they've decided that they want, but when they take a step back to uncover why, they discover that maybe they're fighting for the wrong thing. Sometimes getting the other party to question their own reasons for whatever it is they want can be a negotiation strategy, to question and perhaps undermine their motivation to fight for it. If they haven't fully understood their motivation for their requests, and that gets questioned and brought to the surface during negotiations, sometimes they can discover that they want something a little bit different. So we need to be clear on what we want and why we want it. So we can balance them against the things that we can afford to give away if required. But we need to be realistic in all of this. For a win-win outcome, we need to be sure that what we're asking for or expecting is reasonably deliverable and potentially agreeable. We need to keep the big picture in mind and make sure that whatever it is we're looking to get out of this situation isn't too small, too petty, too selfish, or otherwise doesn't fit within the context of the wider organisation or relationship with everyone involved. Sometimes external parties, third parties, those not directly involved in the negotiations, might become the real losers if we get our way. And who we're negotiating with might not mind this, or they might decide to represent that external stakeholder in the negotiations and apply that pressure as a proxy back from that stakeholder onto our demands to push back. But once we understand all these things about ourselves, the next thing we need to understand is all the same things about the other parties. And we really do want to understand all of it. What they're looking for, what are their priorities, and why are they investing in them? It's not enough for us to pursue our outcomes with some blind assumption that the other party will eventually give in on that because we assume that those things aren't very important to them. We need to know what's important to them. Find out exactly And we might learn about something secondary that also is really important to them, but perhaps not so important to us. This helps us discover some of the easier concessions that might build leverage in our favour. 
So when we're building our strategy for negotiation, there's a few things that we should keep in mind. And the first is sharing, sharing of information, what we just discussed. If we want to get the other party to tell us what's important to them and why, then we're usually going to need to share what's important to us and why. This invokes the law of reciprocation again. Keeping all of our cards too close to our chest won't allow the other party to know and see how they can help us because they may be looking for that. And our openness and trust in expressing what's important to us leads to a degree of trust from them. Conversely, not revealing anything makes it difficult for the other party not only to understand how to reach an agreement, but it makes it difficult for them to predict and accept that we want to treat them fairly. And the moment they reach that conclusion, they're less likely to treat us fairly at all. The next point is that the big picture can be our friend. The big picture is the perspective above the parties involved, the thing that unites us, the common ground. If what we're wanting is aligned with the big picture and we can draw the parallels between our needs and the benefits to the big picture, then that can make it a logical and reasonable ally for us. This leads to the next point about starting reasonable and staying reasonable. This is the kind of process is not about ambit claims or starting in an extreme position on the basis that it gives you more room to give things away if you started with something that's ridiculously off the scale. This process is not about haggling because, as we said in the beginning, it's not a contractual negotiation or a sales. It's not a win-lose situation. This is about a negotiated compromise in cooperative professionalism, working with other people in a collaborative, cooperative way. Being unreasonable puts the other party into the expectation that we're aiming for a win-lose framework, and it prompts them to become more unreasonable as a defensive measure. They may become less willing to pursue a win-win strategy themselves. We also need to be respectful to the other parties and ask and expect respect from them. Respect them as people, their position in the argument, their reasons for it, their demands, their requirements, their expectations. We need to respect their background and their culture because this is the only way for us to reliably get that same respect in return. We need to be ready to adapt our plan, to be flexible. And the more we know it, the easier that is. During the discussions, we might learn things that we didn't know we could get or things that we didn't know that they wanted. New opportunities for benefits and gains might open and others might close. Things that we wanted might somehow, through the discussion, prove to be utterly impossible. Being adaptable means we're not wasting the effort that we've invested thus far, and we can adapt our strategy towards new possibilities for a win-win scenario. But the win-win is not really about winning. It's about a fair compromise. And a cynical perspective might call that a lose-lose scenario. It's a less exciting way to express it. But it does amount to a similar thing. Both parties compromise in order to reach what is most important to them, inevitably giving up things that they hope are less important things. But it's also about relationships. Typically these situations are those where we're going to have more long-term interaction with the people involved. And we need to be able to keep that interaction positive and respectful in the future. We want everyone to walk away from this feeling that they've come out with something that they can find acceptable to avoid unnecessarily dark or ill feelings towards either the process, the event, or the other people involved. If the other party feels that they've lost too much, they may find a way to make us pay for it later, perhaps deliberately, perhaps subconsciously. 
perhaps in ways that we don't immediately notice or respond to. We don't want to have the other party walk away with such a sense of regret and resentment that it translates for them into a motivation to do something about that in some other situation. But we also need to maintain our integrity. This is about being ourselves, living up to our own standards consistently. Integrity is about not compromising our standards just to gain a little advantage. It leads us to having a reputation about how we go about the process and working to achieve a win-win outcome so that everyone can be happy with it. But lastly, once we have an agreement, we need to record it. So much generally gets said in these sorts of processes that it's quite easy to apply memory filters sometime later. What we recall or what we believe was said can change over time. It's not that it can change, it almost inevitably will. The human mind is generally so full of contemplating our own position during these discussions that it's perhaps no surprise that this is dominant in our memories in the future and it can easily distort the facts of what was actually agreed upon. So to have an immediate recording of an agreement, don't wait. Don't do it tomorrow or later in the day. If you can't do it in the midst of the discussion, do it immediately after and share it with all of the stakeholders and ensure that you get their acknowledged reply. Don't assume that if we don't hear back from them, they've simply agreed to it. Having a clear record of exactly what was agreed upon with confirmation can avoid unintentional misunderstandings later, but it can also prevent a somewhat intentional tactic to misrecollect what was said or agreed upon as a way of gaining more or gaining something that they didn't get or trying some new negotiations. Because unless we have an agreement that can be accurately recalled upon and acted upon later, then to some extent, we don't actually have an agreement. And much of the effort that we went through in that negotiation might have been wasted. This brings us to the end of Lecture 10D. Hello and welcome to Lecture 10C of MGI 521 Professional Communications. It's Brendan Birchmore here. This discussion is going to look very specifically about mediation and arbitration. How these things work with professional communications. So, mediation. It's about facilitating the resolution of a conflict between other parties. Now, some organisations might have official processes and official forms of mediation. Some laws and some institutions require certain kinds of mediation in certain situations. That's not what this discussion is really about. This is about informal mediation that might occur typically in most professional environments. This is about communication issues that arise when we need to help other parties reach some kind of an agreement. Mediation is also different from arbitration. Arbitration is where the third party, ourselves perhaps, is directly involved in the decision making. In a mediation, it's the parties themselves that have the dispute and who make the decisions. So if we're a mediator, we need to be clear on what our role is and is not. Mediation is certainly a neutral role. We're not taking sides. We're not going to promote one party or one position or one particular outcome over another. We're not involved in the negotiations directly, so we shouldn't have a stake in the outcome. It shouldn't tangibly or materially matter to us exactly what the outcome is. But when it does, we might be a poor choice as a mediator because we might be subconsciously influenced towards particular outcomes that might not suit one party or the other. And we might 
unconsciously use our mediator's role to influence the outcome unfairly, even if we don't mean to. So being a mediator is about helping the parties move forward. And we've spoken already about conflict and negotiation, and we've spoken a lot about the win-win scenario. The win-win is typically the objective in mediation, or it should be the objective of the disputing parties. When it's not, sometimes that's a reason to have a mediator involved. But it's not necessarily the mediator's job to ensure that that agreed ultimate outcome is a win-win result. If it is, then that's perhaps more like arbitration, where the third party takes on a degree of ownership and is representing or even deciding what is a fair outcome. Whether or not a fair outcome or our role in that is or is not our job, whether we are a mediator or an arbitrator or something in between, this needs to be clear at the beginning of our involvement. Are we simply helping the parties to reach an agreement that they, in their wisdom, will decide is good enough? Or are we meant to try to help each party move closer towards a happier win-win outcome that we might have a clearer picture of? You're only going to get the latter situation if both parties agree. If we're meant to have an influence on what's fair, each party really needs to agree to be bound by that from the start. If we don't, then that creates a possibility of an individual party suddenly deciding that they don't like our involvement, that they're not accepting our definition of fair, and this might undermine the entire process. So a mediator's job, then, is to facilitate an outcome but not necessarily to enforce a particular kind of outcome or a particular standard of outcome. Mediation technically is not about that. It's about an agreement, a settlement, and it's about a settlement of the other parties, not a settlement to our satisfaction. So if during mediation we come to a belief that one party is perhaps getting a raw deal or one party is giving up too much or getting too much, one party is perhaps negotiating poorly. It's not necessarily our job to correct that. Unless both parties, in the beginning, have given us their buy-in that that's what they want from us. And even then, we're not usually able to enforce that. Usually, as a mediator, the best we can do is bring to the attention of both parties our view and our perspective if they want it. But it's a fine line to walk. As a leader in a professional environment, we often have to walk that line. We might be involved because we have a responsibility for the well-being of both parties. An unfair outcome might truly be our problem later, and one that we want to avoid here and now. So being clear on our role and ensuring that the other parties are also clear and in agreement with that is an essential starting point. So as a mediator, we don't do the negotiating for them. We facilitate their discussion and the negotiation. Well, what does that mean? What exactly do we do? Well, much of the mediation process is about helping each party to more clearly see the other party's point of view. Often a mediator is required because the parties have not been able to find an agreement. And often that's because the parties cannot easily see each other's point of view. They can see their side of the picture, but they can't easily see where they need to give in order to get. Perhaps because they're not able to easily put themselves in the other party's shoes. 
When people are negotiating for what they want, they're essentially doing battle in a logical and emotional space. And it can be difficult for them to clearly see the other party's perspective on what either one is saying. That is a core responsibility of a mediator, to share that understanding between the parties. Not necessarily to share why we think a perspective is fair, but to help them understand why the other party thinks that their perspective is fair. So this makes our role about clarity, which makes it firmly about communications, about helping and improving the communications and the shared alignment of understanding that's meant to occur between professional communicators and filling those gaps and helping that outcome as and when we need to. It's about removing the uncertainty and uncovering the valuable and relevant truths that will contribute to a successful outcome. But it's the truth as expressed by those parties, not necessarily truth as we think or we know it or believe it to be. Mediation is not always about us tripping up one of the parties, catching them out or calling them on their falsehoods. If we're going to do that, we need their buy-in for that upfront. Informal mediation is not about presenting evidence and confirming it via proof. That's a legal approach. That's not the kind of mediation we're talking about here. We're talking about expressing thoughts and feelings and ideas and taking a position and understanding that. But we're helping the people involved. We're not necessarily helping the outcome, nor are we necessarily helping the organisation that we might always be a part of. It doesn't mean that we're not interested in the organisation, and it doesn't mean we're not interested in the outcome, but our primary goal is to help the people involved to serve their needs in the situation so that together we can get an outcome that also ultimately serves the needs of the organisation. There are some key things we can keep in mind, whether we're a mediator or an arbitrator. And the first is we should be prepared. We need to do our own research into the situation, the background of that situation, the history of it perhaps. We don't just take the position statements of each party, nor do we just take their word for truths that we should accept. If we can find out our own understanding, if we can determine our own truths, we should do so. We are often uniquely positioned to have an unemotional perspective on the information that's being presented. We are less likely to suffer from emotional or cognitive bias. And that's what we bring to that discussion. And that's what the parties are often relying upon us to help them reach a more mutual understanding of the truths that are relevant. We need to know enough about the background so that we can contextually understand exactly what each party believes, feels and expresses in that situation. Sometimes we may need to ask others outside of the disputing parties if we need to get more information. And as a neutral third party, we're often uniquely placed to be able to do that. But being prepared also means being very clear on the exact positions of the parties involved. It might mean that we need to go to further lengths with them to get clarity and get certainty on exactly what they mean. Their situation is often emotional, and their expression or even their understanding of their position can become muddied by those emotions. Us delving deeper to get that clarity can sometimes be enough to help them see their own position in a new or better way that leads to a better result. That discussion, the process of helping us understand what 
each party means, also gives the opposing party, if they're present, an equal opportunity to understand the other party's position just as well. So it can serve two purposes, clarity for us, clarity for both other parties involved. We also need to be open and honest. We often shouldn't conceal what we do know. We don't want to distort the truth. We're not manipulating the facts for the situation. The parties involved need to be confident, certainly in our neutrality, but also in our honesty to both of them. Honesty towards each of them separately and honesty towards the outcome at the end, the organisation or the situation itself. We need to be encouraging honesty by exhibiting honesty. We also need to be patient. We're not here to push the parties into a corner. We may be useful to keep the process moving forward if it gets stalled. But this is also a process of discovery and realisation of these disputing parties about each other. And often we need to let that take its course. We need to allow each party to learn and discover and understand what they need to about each other. But we also need to be firm. We need to have rules of the process that we're going through. We need to make the parties involved aware of the process and aware of the rules that we're going to enforce, and we need to enforce them. Rules about things like behaviour, what's acceptable, sharing of the floor and the opportunity to speak, things like expectations of how this should work, what each party should or shouldn't do, how they should treat each other, how they should treat us. Things like our intentions, our role, the boundaries of our role, and how we're going to handle things. Being firm with fairness ensures that the parties don't trample on each other's fairness or their opportunities or their rights. But also, us being firm with the process means that the parties themselves don't need to worry about being firm with the process. They don't need to call each other on their possible attempts at bypassing the process. That's our job. We can take that acrimony out of the interaction between the parties by enforcing the rules ourselves so that they don't have to. When the parties start criticising each other's involvement in the process, this can only aggravate the situation. If one party starts infringing on the other party's rights and only that party is there to defend themselves, well, this is going to inflame the discussion, make it harder for the parties to focus on the core elements of the dispute. So part of our role in mediation is to take on the job of ensuring that the process is fairly followed so that they don't have to. We also need to be thorough. We want to get all of the relevant issues out and dealt with. We don't want to let something sit underneath to jump up later and distort and damage the progress that we might have made. We need to ask all of the questions, get all of the issues out on the table and get them discussed and resolved so that hopefully the agreement that's reached at the end doesn't have unnecessary flaws. We also obviously need to be fair. We need to treat all of the parties involved with the same degree of respect and give them the same opportunities in the process. The outcomes themselves are up to them, but they must have the same chance to participate in the process as much as each other. But we always need to be clear. If we aren't sure about something, chances are the parties themselves are even less sure about it. So if they seem unsure about something, we need to make sure that we dig deeper to get the clarity that everyone needs. Our role means we keep an eye out for the signs and signals that either party isn't clear about something. And we drill down and focus on enough of the discussion to make sure that we get the clarity that's needed. We also need to bring closure. We need to clarify what is the end of the agreement. 
we need to remove all doubts from what that truly means to all parties. We need to record that understanding and we need to share it with the parties and proactively get their definitive confirmation that they agree and subscribe to conform to the commitments that they've made at the conclusion of that process. Because remember, it's their agreement, not our agreement. But as the mediator, it is our job to make their agreement as strong and as clear and as long-lasting as we possibly can. This is the end of Lecture 10C. Hello and welcome to Lecture 10D of MGI 521 Professional Communications. My name is Brenton Birchmore. This final pre-recorded audio in the series is about the complexities of confrontational communications. Those moments when we need to express something, but we're in a bit of a bind. Somebody somewhere has done something that we're not happy about, and we want to do something or say something about that. Now, we're going to discuss here what happens within us from our perspective, and we can use that to help us understand how others would think and feel, and therefore how we can respond to them. Now, usually, and perhaps obviously, one of the biggest issues with confrontational communications is usually our emotional vector, our feelings and their impact on how we think, on what we decide, and how that manifests in their impact on other people. These emotions trigger activity in the brain, which impacts our ability to process logic. And this bleeds over into all of the decisions that we make when we're trying to compile our communications. The impact of this is subconscious. It's subtle, but it's usually broad and far-reaching. And it affects everything that we do within our communications. It will impact our tone of voice, our vocabulary, the words we choose to use, the emphasis. It will impact even the way we use our underlying logic because it rearranges the importance of certain points. So it changes what we say, not just how we say it. And these emotions come from the electrical storm within our brain. It's not something you can simply switch off. It's not easy to just turn it off and ignore it. Part of the reason is that it actually changes our goals. An emotional increase changes us from focusing on long-term goals to short-term goals. Emotions brings our need into the immediacy. So we lose sight of the long-term planning that we need to utilize because we've lost sight of the long-term goals. Our emotions are driving our immediate needs based on the electrical storm and what we need to do to lower that. Have you ever noticed an argument that started or sounded a little logical, but eventually devolved into worse and worse forms of discussion and ultimately ends up in name-calling? That's the emotional storm at work. Even when we might start calm and logical, if we're talking about something that has a big emotional impact for us, the lack of immediate solutions might drive frustration and stress within us. Our emotional vector rises as we try to deal with the hurt of not solving the problem immediately. Then the cloudiness begins of our emotional impact on our thoughts and logic. We start to move into things like gross generalizations, false assumptions, things like stereotyping, unfair associations, 
exaggerations. We go in these directions because they're easy and they don't require a great deal of logic to go down to simple accusations or simple feelings that are simply manifested because a lot of our logic has been turned off or suppressed. And this is a biochemical normality for human beings. This is a physical manifestation that we have to deal with. But when we do this, when we create these tangential alternative talking points in a conversation, it can allow other parties to grab onto these, or it can even encourage them to do so, and let them argue those extra unrelated points instead of discussing the thing that started this conversation in the first place, instead of discussing what it's really all about and what's actually causing our emotions and our stress. Now, logically, we know that damaging a relationship is going to probably be bad for us in the long term, even though it might feel better in the here and now. It feels better because it lowers our level of stress and our emotional vector. And it can feel better because we're sharing the hurt, especially if the person we're communicating with is someone that we feel has caused some of our hurt. We want to reciprocate again. We want to share some of that with them. And so we are perhaps encouraged to say things that might be hurtful to them. Now, there's an obvious danger with this. As we inject emotions into our communications, it moves others into their emotional vectors as well. It triggers a cyclic reciprocation. It escalates the emotional content. It means that they are likely to move away from their ability to process the logic, not even of what they're thinking of, but the logic that we're probably hoping that they'll take on from us. But we can't always stop this, or at least not easily. We want to feel better. So usually we might start with some kind of venting, offloading this emotional expression in order to shift down our emotional vector. This can be an internal process, but we often feel a need to externalize it. But we don't always need to externalize it. Expressing something lowers the emotional stress, even when there isn't necessarily someone to listen to it. But even in professional situations, humans are still humans. But we need not always be at the mercy of our emotions driving our communications. Once the feelings are there, usually we either need to vent them, we need to express them and get them out, or we bottle them up, which can have its own separate forms of damage. Sometimes, where possible, it's better to avoid them rising any further than they need to be. Cut them off before they get too far. One thing we can use is to alter the stimuli that we are responding to. Shift our focus from the thing that's currently making us mad to something else. Change the focus of our thoughts. The reason an argument escalates is because we're focusing on the problem we're not solving and we're focusing on the pain. That's the subconscious mechanism that causes those arguments to go in the wrong direction. We can use the same thing constructively to deliberately shift our focus onto other things and other thoughts that will allow us to have a little more control over our communications and our expression. So we try to move away from the thing that set us off in the first place, the thing that made us feel like that. Usually, what we're dealing with in practical terms is a decision that someone made, a decision to do something or say something or 
something that they decided that had an outcome, any form of outcome, which is what we are reacting to. So fundamentally, what we often want is to have other people make different decisions, different from the decision that upset us. So really, we're wanting to try to change what's influencing them or change their priorities. And that can only begin from the logical vector. Sure, we can try to influence them with purely an emotional vector, but that's bringing extra additional influence. That's using emotional consequences to try to alter or influence their decision. It doesn't change the underlying logic that created that decision by them in the first place. They might change their minds because of emotional reasons, sympathy for us, or fear towards us. But that's not going to change their original logic. The purely emotional reasons that we might be giving them have to therefore compete with their original logic, which means in order to do that, we have to make those emotional reasons really strong and powerful. Hence, we are encouraged, if we're using that method of influence, we're encouraged to make our emotions as dramatic as possible, because only by volume and power can they be used to counteract pure logic. So, what we really want to do is to go back and address the logic that influenced the decision. But what usually happens is that something goes wrong, we get upset, we share that upset, and then others get upset. And we create a feedback loop that is self-fulfilling. What we often do is end up creating a barrier to them understanding our perspective, especially if we attack, if we lash out, if we express negatives that are intended to share the hurt. Even if we don't do that, even if we're not overt about it, we're still attacking to some extent with blame. We're still conveying a message that we feel bad and it's their fault. But we might be creating an emotional barrier to their motivation to want to do anything in our favor. Ultimately, we might be motivating them to dig in their heels, usually to defend themselves. The reason is because when we launch our emotional vector, we are attacking them. And their hurt and their pain from that attack will trigger the human fight-or-flight reflex. It causes them to reciprocate and to defend themselves, to go on to the defensive. It causes their minds to focus on the reasons why their original decisions were valid, why they were justified. It makes them want to defend that and to construct in their mind all of the logical reasons why they shouldn't change their views, why they shouldn't consider our point of view. So in some situations, our emotions are causing other people to do the exact opposite of what we really want them to do. Often we worsen the problem we're trying to solve, all because we're human. Now, sometimes venting is what we really want to do. We need to do that. It might be the preferred reason for the communications. Sometimes we don't need to win. We just need to express ourselves. That can be okay. It can be necessary and it can be helpful. But sometimes the outcomes are more important. We want change. And we might need to bite down our emotions so that they don't disrupt their ability to achieve that change. 
But it's hard. We feel wronged. How might we rationalize that? How can we make that a logical issue? Well, the only simple answer is that it's about the future, future gratification, future satisfaction, future happiness. This future gratification is something that all children struggle with. The very young struggle to make any decisions about the future. This is the result of the classical experiment of offering kids, do you want one lolly now or two lollies later? Depending on their age, a lot of them will grab the lolly right now. As we get older, we learn skills that help us make balanced judgments to include things that we cannot yet feel. The imagined future state or the feeling that we can foresee in our minds, that image of future gratification. But this requires the use of our imagination. And imagination is a logical process. It is a predictive process. It is conjuring up possibilities. And we conjure possibilities by following down logical pathways of possible cause and effect and imagining how those things pan out. That's how we imagine future states. And that's really hard to do when our brain is overloaded with an emotional electrical storm. Even as adults, this is hard to do. But this is the logical path in order to doing it. So we're deliberately trying to influence our motivational vector, the actions that we take, by bringing in new emotions to compete with the reactive emotions that have been triggered by the situation that we're not happy with. So the first step for us to do is to honestly measure and assess our current level of emotional input. What has happened to our emotions and what is it really at right now? We ask ourselves how heavy are the current emotions. Second, we might need to release the pressure from that. Maybe this means we write a scathing email, but we don't put a recipient. We just want to put the words down. We want to go through the process of analyzing our emotions by putting it in writing. We might go and yell at the plants in the garden or list of the reasons of things we don't like about the situation. We make an angry list, but we do it privately. But we might still need to do it. This doesn't always need to have an audience. The process still is useful even when it's internal. So now these things are on paper. We can intellectually decide that we've moved them. We've put them out from us. We've externalized them. We've cleared a little bit of space in our mind for our thoughts. So we've vented. The purpose is to offload them. So we let them go, but maybe not totally. We're just trying to take them down from their pedestal that's looming over our decision-making. And this creates the space in our minds to bring in some new emotions, to consider things like the potential feelings of the future satisfaction. Let those feelings have some role in our plans. Let them have a say in our communications. Actually, to make plans and not simply have reactions. The shift we're looking for is from reaction to response, from backlash to an approach, from reactive to proactive, from uncontrolled to controlled and planned. That's the direction we're aiming for. Once we've lowered the fuel that's driving our emotional position, then we can try to give some fuel to the counter position, to the other side of the coin, the other perspective. We still might be opposed to that, we don't like it, but we need to study a little bit of what empowers 
that other view. We need to explore what makes that perspective valid. Not necessarily valid to us. It might never be that. But what makes it valid to someone else? Because if we want to change that perspective, we need to understand where it's come from. So in this, we are exploring and learning about things that explain their perspective. Things that, if not justify it fully, but at least support their perspective. And one of the most common things we might overlook when consumed by our own emotional state is context, particularly their context. Emotion as a dominant thought is raw, it's, it's grounded, it's, a, it's consequence. So it's a derivative of things. And having an other context, imagining another context, like imagining future gratification, that also needs our imagination. It's an intellectual process that gets drowned out by the emotions that we might be in. So we want to deliberately explore this by looking for the forces at work that create pressure or influence on another person's position and what decisions that leads them to. What pushes them in that, in that way? It might not be what we originally thought. And it might not be victim-oriented thinking, like, Thoughts that we might have, such as, they don't care about me. It might not be that at all. In fact, it usually isn't. But when we've looked at these forces and influences, sometimes we might think that we've, we know the answer. We see a solution. It's obvious to us now. And we wish the other people were as smart as us. Well, it's usually not that simple. We often have to accept that, at least statistically, the people around us probably aren't dumb. More often... There are other factors that we haven't yet taken into account. Details, influences, context. Another person's journey shapes their context, their perspective, their predisposition, their priorities and their choices. Intellectually, we know this because we know that it applies to us. But under an emotional storm, we might forget that this truth of human nature is even relevant. But it's always relevant. So even if we think we have an answer, if we approach this by telling that other person bluntly what to do, then once again, we're going to trigger their defensive stance. Their reaction may be indignation, defiance, defense, justification, stubborn refusal. We will trigger in them all the thought processes that will lock down their ability to consider our point of view. Of course it would be. I mean, we would do that too. We're both human. So what could we do? Well, we could ask them to acknowledge, firstly, that we even have a valid reason to have the conversation. Help them to see that our feelings exist without hitting them with the feelings, without sharing the hurt. What we want them to be able to say is that we have a point. Secondly, defer to their power. We don't want to take their power from them. They won't help us if we take our power. Here... We might want to tell them what would help us, but not explicitly tell them what they should do. Because if we tell them what would help us, we allow them to decide if they even want to do that, if that's even important to them. If we tell them what to do, that implies that what they should do, which is what we're telling them, to help us is more important than anything else or any other reasons they might have to do something different. We're telling them, essentially, that we're more important than them. 
that's likely to have a poor reaction. So by letting them know what would help us, letting them decide how much they will or will try to, we are encouraging their empathy towards us whilst not disempowering them from their ability to help us. Ultimately, we can't force people to do things that make us happy. So if in the end they refuse to see our point of view, we are often stuck. But at least we're not worse off with them trying to punish us for what they might consider to be our unfair outburst. This is the end of Lecture 10D.